presents Called to be Visible Compassion. The sermon by the Reverend Jane Randall Bodman presented on Sunday, November 6th, 2022. Today we continue working our way through Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ, how a forgotten reality can change everything we see, hope for, and believe. Today we're going to back up to chapters 11, This Is My Body, and especially chapter 12. Why did Jesus die? Two tiny little topics that haven't caused any ruckus for the last 2,000 years of of theological wrangling. Obviously, though Richard Rohr may claim to, I will not be coming up with answers, definitive answers to those questions in the next 10 minutes. But I do hope to invite us into a fresh encounter with these central ideas of our tradition, and maybe use Richard Rohr's reflections to shake loose some ideas that we're not even aware we're still carrying around with us. Richard Rohr starts by reminding us that for many years he has worked with men, one-on-one as their spiritual director, but even more in groups. He's traveled around the world to work with groups of men focusing on men's spirituality and rites of passage. And he he says that this work has shown him, and I quote him, how deeply the human psyche in almost every culture has been wounded and scarred by violent, unavailable, and abusive fathers and other men. The impact of this wounding on our spiritual sensitivities is profound. He goes on to say that although people have many reasons that they may not trust or believe in God, One of the most counterproductive things Christians have done is add to those reasons by presenting God the Father as a tyrant, as sadistic, as a rageaholic dad, or just an unreliable lover. That is quite a charge that Rohr is making, that the way we talk about God is a major barrier to people experiencing God's love. But bear with us both. It's all wrapped around the way we talk about the meaning of the crucifixion. Now, for the first thousand years or so of Christian history, there was no one consensus about what the foundational statement, Jesus died for our sins, actually meant. For the first thousand years, the explanation for why Jesus died was that Jesus' death was a ransom, paid not to God, but to the devil. That was the predominant idea. There were many, but that was the one that rose to the surface. Now, as Rohr points out, to our modern ears, that might sound a little bit silly, but it is what Christians believed for almost a millennium. Unfortunately, this made the devil quite powerful and God quite weak. But it gave people someone to blame for Jesus' death, and at least people were not blaming God. Then in the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury wrote a paper called Cordeus Homo, Why Did God Become Human? Anselm thought he could make sense of the problem of sin through the lens of the medieval code of feudal shame and honor. 
It's what he lived in, it's what he knew, it's how the world worked. And he concluded that human sin dishonored God, and therefore, a price needed to be paid to restore God's honor. But that price could only be paid of someone who had equal honor with God. In other words, God is the only one who could, could pay that price. No one not equally divine could pay the price because that too would dishonor God. So God paid this price by sending his son in order to sacrifice him. Over the next few centuries, this honor and shame-based understanding was accepted by most Christians, and it was given the title Penal Substitutionary Atonement. When Protestants came along and critiqued Roman Catholic theology and practice, they unfortunately not only kept the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, we embraced it with fervor. The evangelicals in America and Britain later enshrined it as one of the four pillars of foundational Christian belief. If you don't believe that God paid the price for your sins by killing his son, you aren't really Christian. This understanding of the meaning of Jesus's death rests on a retributive understanding of justice. One is Christ pays in place of us sinners, thus satisfying the demand of justice. Someone had to be punished so that God could forgive our sins. I'd like to pause for a moment and remind us that this ignores the whole witness of the Hebrew Bible, in which God continually forgives the people for breaking the covenant they have made with God. Over and over again, God forgives the people. Moreover, if this theory is true, all we need is the last three days or even the last three hours of Jesus' life. Rohr writes, in my opinion, this interpretation has kept us from a deep and truly transformative understanding of Jesus and Christ. Salvation becomes a one-time transaction between Jesus and his Father, instead of an ongoing transformational lesson for the human soul and for all of history. It is hard to love and trust or desire to be with a God who demands to be paid and appeased in blood. Even if you move past the discomfort of such a demand and instead focus on the willingness of Christ's sacrifice, we end up only thanking Jesus instead of trying to honestly imitate him as part of our thanksgiving. At its worst, the theory of substitutionary atonement leads us to see God as remote, brutal, and cold, a character who demands acts of violence before God can love God's own creation. Rohr thinks that the teachings and death of Jesus offer a much better image of God, a God in solidarity with humanity. In keeping with the tradition of the ancient prophets, the vision of God that Jesus brought was a radical departure from the practice of much ancient religion. To go back and unpack briefly, the idea in ancient Israel of giving an eye for an eye was, first of all, an interruption of the surrounding culture, which rested not on equal repayment, but on an escalation. You blinded my son in one eye, 
I'm going to blind your son in both. Instead, Jewish law prohibited anyone from taking more in recompense than what had been lost. Moreover, they offered the option of payment, not violence. This was an interruption of the human tendency to escalate and keep violence in circulation. It was a law limiting harm. You hurt me, you receive payment from me. The goal of the law found in Exodus was to restrict, restrict compensation to the value of the loss. It placed a limit and interrupted the cycle of escalation and limitless retribution, which we so humans, which we humans so readily fall into and spiral downward. The same kind of understanding of retribution underlaid the system of temple sacrifice, at least the animals that were offered as sin or guilt offering. There were other kinds, but that's for another day. So that was part of the temple system. But along came the prophets, like Hosea, through whom God said to the people, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. And Isaiah, through whom God said to the people, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Jesus taught and lived and died and was resurrected in this tradition, not as part of a transaction or a payment, but in order to interrupt the idea of retributive justice, to replace restorative justice, replace it with restorative justice, and invite us to be transformed. The prophets revealed this about God, that when the people repeatedly broke the covenant that they themselves had made with God, God responded by loving them more. Jesus' life, teaching, and death were intended to extend this tradition by placing God inside human suffering in solidarity. Rohr writes, I believe that we are invited to gaze upon the image of the crucified Jesus to soften our hearts to all suffering, to help us see how we ourselves have been bitten by hatred and violence, and to know that God's heart has always been softened toward us. He came to reveal who God is in his own body, in solidarity with human beings. As Christians, we are called to be the visible compassion of God on earth, not just the team of those who get to go to heaven. Today, we will remember again the meal that Jesus had with his friends on the night before he died. Here, we keep an open table in the spirit of Jesus who sat at table with all kinds of people, some who knew their need for healing and forgiveness and belonging, some who wanted to dispute with him, some who wanted to exclude other people from the table. The only requirement was that they wanted to be there with Jesus. We come to this table at Jesus' invitation that we keep this feast, the appointed place where he pursues, where we are aware of his presence in this bread and this drink, 
so that we can become aware of his presence in all things and in all places. Our hearts in solidarity with the suffering of the world, our eyes and hearts open to the love, beauty, and goodness God has placed all over the world. Amen. Listen, listen.